Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 9 this morning. Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 through 9. Last time we saw Abram called by God to leave his country, to leave his family, yes, to leave his father's house. And to go to some foreign land without knowing where he was going. And God made him seven promises as he called Abram to go. He said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless the ones blessing you. I will curse the ones cursing you. And in you all the families... Nations, Paul translates it in Galatians 3.8. Ethne, people groups of the earth will be blessed. And we saw how the ultimate blessing to Abram and from Abram would be in his future son whom we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we receive the blessings and that's how Abram received the blessing. In fact, it is Jesus Christ who is the name of who is the blessing, who is the greatness, and indeed who is the Lord and ruler of all the nations. All of those promises God made to Abram were fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And we saw how that blessing was received by Abram, that he believed in God and that he, uh, in him, all are blessed. And apart from him, there is only curse. And we know ultimately that's true. And so Abram's blessing and hope and interest in God was by faith in God's promise and God's work. It was not by faithfulness in Abram's response in Abram's work. Perish the thought and the false gospel that that is. The only thing Abram was told to do in this initial call of God was to leave everything he knew and hoped in and had ability from to the very degree that he didn't even know where he was going. Therefore, he didn't know how long it would take. Therefore, he didn't know what it would be like when he got there so that he could prepare beforehand. All he had was the word of God. Let go. Nay, forsake. Forsake all earthly confidence and comforts and ability and contribution and trust entirely in my word. And by the grace of God, Abram believed and Abram went. He believed and he went because God was with him. But what did he find when he actually came to the place where God told him to go? And how did he live once he got there? That's what we see in our text, a very important text for us in living out our faith this morning. Let's pray for God's blessing to attend his word. Father, again, we're about to hear from your word, your perfect, inerrant, infallible word. Help us to understand it rightly. And then, Lord God, by your grace... Make it powerful in our hearts and lives, creating, sustaining, and growing faith and obedience. And Lord God, help us to rejoice and grow in all of the fruits and graces and gifts of the Spirit by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. This is God's holy word. So Abram departed... As the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, 
and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. May the Lord establish this word, I pray, in our hearts this morning. I want you to notice in our text the truth of Scripture. I want you to notice the truth of Scripture. We live by the word of God, God's word, and not by bread alone, Scripture says. God's word is life to us. It's salvation. God's word brought creation into existence. And God gives us his word in the scriptures in order to know about him and salvation and about how we are to live and to have salvation. What is right and wrong, all the rest, many of these things also declared in general revelation of the creation, but many other things not declared like salvation and the Savior, which we don't get from the earth. We only get from the word. But the word of God is given to us, right, to know him, to live for him, to be saved. But we need to rightly interpret it. We need to rightly translate it from its original languages. And we need to keep it in the context in which it is given and according to the genre of literature that it is given. It's written word. So it's propositional truth. But sometimes it's in poetry. Sometimes it's in symbolic, uh, apocalyptic literature. Sometimes it's in letter and didactic literature to a particular audience, and yet the truths of Scripture are to be applied to us. And so all of these things are to be taken into account. And why do I say all that? Because in this text, and I've alluded to this before, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but critics find particular errors and problems and even what they call contradictions uh, in our text. If you look at the end of chapter 11, for example, in the beginning of our text, and how old is Terah when Abram leaves and so forth, and, and how old is he when he dies, and is he still alive when he leaves the land? And there are some textual issues, and there are some um, ways in which we can harmonize the text. Ultimately, we don't know the answer, because Scripture doesn't give us all of the details. We know certain ways in which it could be, and that's why I have not gone into it. But I'm going to give you a more concrete issue that is pointed out. So if you look in our text this morning, and you look in the previous text, and all the way back to chapter 11, verse 31, you'll read that they went out from, with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. All right, that's the initial message about Abram. I want to keep calling him Abram. I want to call him Abraham, which is actually not uh, that bad of an idea, and I'll explain that in a minute. But the initial call of Abram is, is related all the way back in chapter 11. And, and then he went to go to the land of Canaan. And we saw in our text, verse 5, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Do you see that? They departed to go to the land of Canaan. And you say, okay, pastor, what are you talking about? Where are you going this time? Well, if you looked at the end of verse 1, it says, go to a land that I will show you. God hasn't told them the land. In chapter 11, 31, it says they went to go to the land of Canaan. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, it says Abram went out not knowing where he was going. And then 
in verse 5, they went to go to the land of Canaan. So which is it? Did they know that they were going to the land of Canaan? Or did he go out not knowing where he was going? Critics make a big deal about this. There is absolutely no issue in this text whatsoever. And there's no contradiction whatsoever. Again, we need to understand historical narrative in the way in which the scripture is speaking. I continue to almost call Abram at this point, Abraham. Paul does in Galatians 3. When referring to our text, he refers to Abram at this point in history as Abraham. Hebrews 11, which we read, which refers to this text, doesn't speak of an Abram. It speaks of an Abraham. Abraham doesn't get his name until Genesis 17. Scripture speaks of him beforehand. That's called a prolepsis. It's a figure of speech. It's speaking proleptically. We do it all the time. I'm going to give you some examples. But I want you to notice how it works in our text. Was Abram and his family, his immediate family, because he leaves everyone else, his wife and his servants and so forth, were they going to the land of Canaan? Absolutely. That's why Scripture says that at the end of chapter 11 and in verse 5 of our text. They were going to the land of Canaan. Moses knew that, who's writing this. And all the Jews, 500 years after the fact, when Moses is writing this text, they all knew that Abram was going to the land of Canaan. And so in a prolepsis, Moses writes, and they went to go to the land of Canaan. Even though at that moment in history, Abram had no idea where he was going. Had no idea. But we know, and the audience knew, and everybody knows, they were going to the land of Canaan, and so he just writes, they went to the land of Canaan, because the whole audience knows that. But at the time of their going, they didn't know. So both of these things are true, and it's not a contradiction at all. And this kind of prolepsis, we see in Scripture everywhere, and we use it in life all the time. All right, I've already referred to the fact that Paul and the book of Hebrews refers to Abraham or Abram as Abraham when he was not yet Abraham. But that's because all of us call him Abraham. And we know he's Abraham. He'll become Abraham. So we just, you know, shortcut it and say he's Abraham even when he's technically still Abram at that point in time in history, right? If you look at verse 8 in our text, you'll see that Abram pitches his tent near this city called Bethel. And Moses is going to mention Bethel multiple times. And yet, in chapter 28 of Genesis, he's going to tell us that Bethel actually didn't become Bethel until Jacob gives it the name Bethel. But he calls it Bethel beforehand because every Jew knows it as Bethel. And then he lets them know in chapter 28, oh, by the way, we all know that this place used to be called Luz, but Jacob calls it Bethel, Bethel, house of God, because that's where he sees and meets God. And yet we can call it Bethel beforehand, right? We do this kind of thing all the time. This is, by the way, the 50th anniversary of the PCA. How many of you knew that? Most of you know that, right? 50th anniversary of the PCA. PCA was born in 1973, December 4th, 1973, to be exact, the first General Assembly of the PCA. And so everywhere, if you went to the General Assembly this year, if you've been reading anything from our you know, national headquarters in Georgia, you're going to see 50th anniversary celebration, and we're encouraged to do all these things to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the PCA. And yet, I'm here to tell you that technically speaking, If you would go back 50 years to 1973, there was no such thing as the PCA. December 4th, December 5th, December 6th, if you would have asked all those men leaving that first General Assembly, it's great that there's now a PCA. They would have looked at you and said, what are you talking about? There was no PCA in 1973. 
What was born December 4th, 1973, was called the National Presbyterian Church. It became the PCA the next year when they changed the name. But nobody does that, right? Nobody says, well, technically, the National Presbyterian Church was born in 1973, and the PCA came into existence in 1974 at the Second General Assembly. We just call it the 50th anniversary of the PCA. Because that's the way we talk in English and in every other language all the time. It's speaking proleptically. It's speaking now about something that wasn't actually the case, technically speaking, at the time. But it would become that way later. And that's all that is happening in our text. Why do I make such a big deal about that? Because we need to trust the scriptures. And we need to rightly interpret the scriptures so that skeptics and critics that make these kind of uh, false criticisms can be shown to be wrong. And there's nothing wrong with the text at all. And again, this is the way we speak all the time. I was uh, uh, sent um, just this past week from one of the elders a, a, a social media post, all right? And this kind of stuff is happening more and more, unfortunately, on the internet. And I hope that you're not falling for this garbage. But the post said this, God speaking to Adam pre-fall, quote, take dominion of the earth. God speaking to Noah post-fall, quote, take dominion of the earth. God speaking to his church at the ascension, quote, all authority is mine, go tell the nations to obey me. And then the post ends with this statement, not once in scripture is dominion not the mission. You know what I think of that statement? I think it's a complete distortion and perversion of the word of God at every step of the way. It sounds, if you just kind of skate over the scriptures, like, oh, wow, guess we're supposed to go out and take up arms and conquer the world. Dominion, that's our call. No, that's not our call. Go back to Genesis chapter one. God did not speak to Adam, take dominion of the earth. God said to Adam and Eve before he even created them, let us make man in our image, in the image of God having dominion over the creatures. God made them with dominion. They had dominion. God gave man dominion at creation. He announced it in Genesis 1.26. Let them have dominion. And then in 1.28, he tells them, go and have the dominion that I've given you because you are in the Imago Dei. By definition, you have dominion. Go exercise it. He didn't command them to take dominion. This is the kind of perversion that false teachers do. What about speaking to Noah post-fall? Did he say take dominion? Actually, if you look in Genesis 8 and 9, when God speaks everything he says to Noah and his sons, he never even comes close to mentioning the word dominion or subdue or anything like that. What God says to Noah and his sons is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, bring the animals out of the earth, don't eat the blood, institute capital punishment. That's all the commands he gives them. That's it. Fruitful, multiply, go, not take dominion. Who are they going to take dominion over? There's nobody left. There's only eight of them. They already have the animals. They're already in dominion over them. This is the kind of absurdity that you can fall for when you listen to false teachers. What about the Great Commission? Jesus saying to the church at his ascension, all authority is mine. Go tell the nations to obey me. Is that what he says? Jesus does not command anyone to go out and tell the nations to obey him. He commanded the apostles 
to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, baptizing them. Who is the them? Is it the nations? It can't be. Nations is neuter. Them is masculine. It's the disciples. We're only supposed to teach the disciples to obey. We're only supposed to baptize the disciples. And by the way, it doesn't mean disciple the nations. I get so sick and tired of hearing that. Reconstructionist nonsense. That's not what it says. It's in the aorist active. It's completed action usually in the past. You cannot do that. You cannot make it an ongoing present disciple the nations. In English, you have to add the word make to give it the finality that the word carries in the Greek. It's make disciples. They're made. Now you baptize them. Now you disciple, or now you teach them. But that's what the aorist demands. That's why every English translator, and that's why every Greek scholar will tell you, you have to add the word make in English because it's aorist and it's completed. You've done something. It's completed. You've made disciples. Another place, the only other place in the New Testament where that word is used in that exact form where it's to make disciples is Acts 14.21. Here it is an aorist participle, so it's got to have completed action. Acts 14.21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. You know the word made isn't there in the Greek. But you have to add it. Because it's, you can't just say, and they discipled which is all you see in the Greek, but it's aorist participle. They having made disciples, the completed action made disciples. And so is there the word make in Matthew uh, 28, 19, 20? No, but do you have to add it? Yes, because it's not the same language and it's completed action. It is not go and convert the nations. And as I've said before, if that's the case, you know, get all the leaders to bow the knee to Christ. We're still waiting for the first success after 2000 years. First, Jesus never got it to happen. The apostles never made it happen. They never discipled a single nation, if that's what it means. Take over the nations. That is not what it says. If you want to hear more on this uh, teaching, I encourage you to go listen to my sermon on September 4th, 2022, The Mission of the Church, Part 2, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. That is just a gross distortion of Scripture. Only throughout Scripture... Only individuals can be made a disciple and only individuals can be baptized. This idea again, that dominion take over the nations. I know how we feel the pressure. We see what's happening with the liberal culture. We see them. And what do you want to do? You want to react in kind. Well, we're going to go and and take it back. And unfortunately, that's not our call. And God has never promised that. We're called to bear witness to the the gospel. Go and bear witness. It's funny, the other... um, uh, Great commissions get that, right? The other great commissions. Matthew's great commission is what he uses to distort scripture. But that Mark, Luke, John, and Acts all emphasize that it's the preaching of the gospel, that it's faith and repentance, that it's Jesus is Lord. That's what we proclaim. Matthew or Mark 15, 16, 15, and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's the same thing as that Matthew is saying in his. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command you to do. It's the preaching mission of the church. It's not conquer the nation. He made them disciples, not political activists, and not conquerors. Witnesses. 
you will be my witnesses. That's what Luke says. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. We're called to be witnesses. Witnesses of Christ. Witnesses of his truth. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the father has sent me, I also send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's the great commission. Acts chapter one, verse eight, after the disciples really want that kingdom, are you gonna give the kingdom back to us now? Do we get to sit on our thrones now? What a lot of Christians are thinking is gonna happen. Jesus said, "Never mind. don't worry about it. It's not your business. But then he says, what is your business? Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our call. We witness to the kingdom that Christ has already conquered, that he has already uh, possesses fully. He sat down at the right of hand of God. He'll never have more authority than he has right now. We proclaim it. We bear witness to it. We live it out. And that's exactly what Abram does in the land of promise. So I want you to notice, secondly, the promise of the land. I want you to notice the promise of the land. So we need to be careful with these false teachers that are out there. We need to look at scripture, look at it accurately, carefully, look at it in its genre, right? So we can recognize things like prolepsies, not add things or take things out, distort things. I want you to notice the promise of the land. In verses 1 to 3, where we got those seven promises, we actually didn't get a specific promise of a land that God would give to Abram. He kind of implies it when he says at the end of verse 1, to the land that I will show you. And then in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Nations need land, and he's sending you to a land, ergo, probably he's going to give you some land. But he never actually literally says, I'm giving you land until verse 7 of our text. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. The very first promise of the land to Abram is not to Abram, it's to his descendants. Do you see that? The very first time God explicitly says, I promise you, I give you land. He says to your seed. Now seed in Hebrew doesn't have a plural form or it just has the one form. And that's seed uh, can be singular or plural. It's a group noun. Paul alludes to that in Galatians 3.16. Paul says, now to Abraham, notice how Paul speaking proleptically. Now to Abraham... And his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, Paul's referring to the fact that in the Septuagint, seed does have a plural form. Spermacene. And the Septuagint authors, when they translate this text of our passage, do not use spermacene. They use spermatai, singular. Singular. That's what Paul is saying, that ultimately the promise is fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to know that Abram understood that. This was not some great big secret to Abram. As soon as God says to him, to your seed, to your descendants, I will give this land. What does he know? He's not going to experience that. So this is going to come in the future. This isn't about him and his time and his, you know, three score and ten and just what happens to him in the temple. And that's all that God should be concerned about because he's the center of the universe, as so many of us do. Oh, my goodness, if God isn't going to help me in my moment, where is he? 
Abram understood that God's plans were bigger than just him. At this moment, it's clear to your descendants, someday they're going to have this land. And that's what Abram lived by. He lived by a faith that he knew he wasn't going to actually possess. And that's the point of Hebrews 11.8, which we read. By faith, Abram went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. God says, this is your land, and he's a foreigner in his land. And the Bible says, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. So it wasn't even his immediate son or his immediate grandson that was going to get the land because they too were foreigners, and they too lived in tents and had to move around. Abram in the promised land is is like in a big Winnebago. And he's going from campsite to campsite. He hooks up for a while, you know. He gets the water and the electricity, gets rid of the sewage. You know, stays there for a week. And then he goes to the next campsite and to the next. He doesn't own a single thing. And God promised it all that it was his. And Abram recognized ultimately, again, that there was another city beyond the land. Abram lives as a foreigner. He Notice it in verse 8. It says he pitches his tent. And then in verse 9 where it says Abram journeyed, the Greek says, he, or sorry, the Hebrew, he pulled up. He pulled the stakes up. That's what he journeyed is. So he's pitching his tent. He's pulling up his tent. He's a nomad in his own land. And he knows this. That's what we saw in verse Nine again. Let me read verses 9 and 10 from Hebrews. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a forward country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They don't get any more of it than he did. And then listen to verse 10. For, why did he do this? Well, because he didn't know, Pastor. You know, he, he just didn't understand. No, he did understand. Verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abram knew. That that little strip of land was not what God was promising him. That was a token. What he was getting promised was a city from God. A city which has foundations, whose builder and maker. He was not looking for a human city, ultimately. He was following God for an eternal, everlasting inheritance. And he understood it the same as we do. And we can't miss that. How do we know that? Verse 5. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered and the literally souls whom they had acquired in Haran. That's important because souls is more than people. I know our text puts the word people in there. In Hebrew, souls would be creature. Animals repeatedly are called living souls throughout the scriptures. Living souls. I don't even want to get into whether or not animals have souls the way we do. But I'm just pointing out that souls includes humans and animals All living creatures are living souls in the Hebrew. So when it says that he took the people, it means it says he took the souls. So they're taking everything. They're taking all their cattle, all their sheep, all their camels. Abram doesn't leave a hoof behind. And yes, he does actually own people, slaves that we would say, servants. This is the first mention of slavery in the Bible. And it's in the family of Abram, the father of the faithful. I don't know what you expect me to do with that. I don't know anything more about it. I'm not going to rail against Abram as if he was doing some great, horrible thing. I don't know that. I know this. 
that oftentimes, all the way through the colonial times, one of the common punishments for criminals was slavery. You would have to go and work for the person that you stole from and, and pay them back. By the way, that never happens today. You ever have something stolen from you? Somebody do something to you? And the police catch them. And the police put them in jail. You don't get it back. And they never have to return it. It doesn't happen. If, it, if they can't find it, if they squandered, they don't have to work for you and actually justly pay back you. They did in that system. In that system, even in colonial times, you'll read about it. So-and-so, you know, stole Brother John's peach at breakfast, and so he had to be his slave for the day. That was a common way to pay back, and it was more just than it is today. So let's not be these ridiculous social justice hypocrites who stand on our high horse and look down on a man who had more faith in his little finger than we'll have in our whole collective being. Abram was a godly man living at this time. I don't know what this means. Maybe he rescued these people. But let's not be like, again, the hypocrites who see injustice everywhere except in their own hypocrisy. Abram takes everything. What does that mean? There's no plan B. He's not going back. He will either succeed or he will die following God. He doesn't leave a base of supplies in here. And, well, you know, we should open up an account here just in case this doesn't work. We'll have something to fall back to. God said go. And Abraham takes everything and he goes. He doesn't look back like Lot's wife, though she was with him at this time. Lot and his wife. Lot would have been close to Abraham's age because I think Haran was much older. That's part of the solution to the end of chapter 11 and 12 when uh, uh, Terah begins to have children when he's 70 but he doesn't have Abram till he's much much older just just as Noah has Shem Ham and Japheth when he's 500 but actually Shem's born when he's 502 and you can prove that from the text but he begins to have them when he's 500 that's all the Hebrew means all right verse 13 again of our scripture reading so what about Abram he goes what happens to him? Verse 13 of our scripture reading. These all died in faith. Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who it's talking about. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. They didn't get the land. They didn't get the great name. The whole world wasn't blessed in them. Not having received. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Listen. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Did you hear that? We're assured of them. And they embraced them and they confessed. And this is crucial. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It's their land. They confessed, we're strangers and pilgrims. This isn't our home. We're looking for a better place, even than the land that God has given to us. You know you don't really own anything, right? You know that. Go home to your house and, and look at it and walk around in it. What's going to happen when you die? Do you get to take that with you? You don't own that house. You're living in it for a time. You know, if you were, I don't know, vindictive like some of the pharaohs and stuff, you could have everything destroyed that you own the moment you die so no one can get it. But it's not yours. I think about that all the time when I'm in the house and like I think about the family that lived there before and who's going to live there after. It's not my home. What fool would think that his home is in this world when you're going to die and you're going to leave? And that's what Abram and Isaac and, under, and Jacob understood. And they, and they believe, which means they know there's an eternal life. 
They're, they're, they're looking to, in faith to God to promises. They know they're not going to get till they die, yet they still believe and follow. They know there's a life after death. And that was their hope, beloved. And I, I don't want to leave out, you know, I'm mentioning Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I don't want to leave out the fact that the godly women were doing the same thing. Matthew Henry actually reminds us of this. He points this out with regard to Sarai. He said, you know, Sarai too goes willingly. She too willingly leaves everything. And then he says this in a pretty good quote, Matthew Henry, quote, if Abram leave all to follow God, Sarai will leave all to follow Abram. Though neither of them knew where they were going. He actually says whither, I'm updating the English. And it was a mercy to Abram to have such a companion in his travels, a help meet for him. Again, Matthew Henry, husband and wife agree to go together, end quote. Sarai was just as much a woman of faith as Abram was a man of faith. Of course, what kind of a husband would Abram have been if he would have tried to force her to go against her will? If he really loves her, as he's supposed to love her, he won't settle for her coming for any other reason than that she would come. He's going to go. He wants his wife to come with him. She wants to go because God has spoken to them. This is the promise of the land. Thirdly, I want you to notice the presence of enemies. The presence of enemies. Again, Hebrews eleven fifteen 15 from our scripture reading. If truly they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But they never did. They never called it to mind. They never had opportunity to return. Did you notice in the text where it mentions Canaan in verse 5. They departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Again, some critics here are saying, hey, there's some kind of weird thing going on. Why would it just say basically the same thing in two sentences? Oh, there must be the J author here and the P author here. And Yeah, right. Canaan is ominous. Very next verse. And the Canaanites were in the land. In two verses we get Canaan, Canaan, Canaanites. What have we been seeing in our scripture up until now. Do you know in Genesis, the previous chapters 1 to 11, the word Canaan or Canaanites appears 10 times in the first 11 chapters. Now, obviously not in the first several to after the flood. 11 times we get Canaan, Canaanites, Canaan, Canaanites. And one of the most memorable, memorable is in chapter 9, verse 25, where Noah says, cursed be Canaan, right? The curse falls on Cain. And the curse had fallen on Cain before, right? It falls on the ground, fell on the um, um, people before the flood. But now it's cursed be Canaan. And the Canaanites are in the land. You recognize that as Moses is writing this text during the Exodus, they're about to enter the promised land where the Canaanites hold sway. And that's what they're shown here in this text. 500 years earlier, as Abram is passing through the heart of the land, passing through Shechem and Morah, right in the center. Where is it, what does it say? The Canaanites were there. The Canaanites owned this land. Now we know later on in Genesis 15, God's going to say that the Canaanites are not wicked enough yet for God to have them wiped out. It's going to take another 400 years for them to fill up their iniquity. Because God is so patient and long-suffering, even with pagans. But we know they were wicked. We know from archaeological records, the Canaanites not only practiced false religion, they practiced blood cults. 
where they would drink blood and sacrifice blood. They sacrificed infants. They sacrificed humans in worship to their false gods. They had gross and perverted sexual practices. If you go back to chapter 10 and you read about the Canaanite cities that Moses tells us, you'll read of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. Those were Canaanite cities. The heinous, abominable practice of homosexual sin, sexual perversion, that was a Canaanite pride. They celebrated it. That was the Canaanites. That's who they were. Now, how wicked they were at this time, we don't know. We know some of this is going on. Some of the scholars think that's why Abraham keeps moving. Do you notice how he's moving constantly through the text? I said he's like in a Winnebago driving around. But if you look at it, verse 6, Abram passed through the land, right? Then he goes to this group of trees, terebinth tree, oak tree, terebinth. It probably refers to an oasis of trees because that's where you would stop and, you know, take refreshment. And then it says in verse 8, he moved from there to the mountain. And Bethel's on one side, Nye's on the other side, and he encamps over by the mountain. And then in the last verse, it says he takes up his stakes and he goes south. Three different times. Abraham's going, going, going. Why? Because the Canaanites were in the land. And you better be on the move. Because they might just decide to destroy you if you're there in the morning. And so Abram's constantly moving. And notice how he never stays in a city or a town. He goes to where the trees are. He goes over by the mountain. He goes south, the Negev, literally south, the dry country. But he never goes into Ai or into Shechem or anywhere else. Sometimes we have to be wise and judicious, right? Sometimes we have to be careful as we live among the Canaanites. I've told many Christians who've come to me for counsel, some of you, don't make yourself a target unnecessarily. You don't need to stick your head on the chopping block so that you can get fired. You don't need to do the first thing you know your company's going to attack you for. Sometimes it's good to keep your head down. Sometimes it's good to be wise. Right? We're living in that kind of a time now where you've got to be careful what you say. You might just read something from the Bible and be called a hater and fire. Be careful. Jesus said, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. You're allowed to do that. If your job's getting too hard, look for another job. But don't, at the same time, don't compromise your faith. But again, you don't need to make yourself a target. Abraham's entire life, the cursed Canaanites dwell in, enjoy, make use of the land, possess it more than he ever does. His whole life, and it's his land, not theirs. But I want you to notice something. The same is true for us. That's true for us. Did you know that this is our land? This world is our world. God has given it to us. I want you to understand this rightly now, as Abram clearly did. 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things are yours, Paul says. All things are yours. 2,000 years ago. Revelation 21.7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If God has given you Christ, you don't think he's going to give you this paltry world in comparison? He's given you Christ. He's going to give you all things. And by the way, you know, he gives his elect Christ. He gives his elect. We're talking about Christ. Uh, the saved, the children of God have all things in God. That's what we understand. We are the heirs, beloved, of the whole world. But so was Abram. 
So was Abram. Scripture literally says that. Romans 4.13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world. Romans 4.13, look it up if you don't believe me. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham, speaking proleptically, or to his seed through the law. Wasn't that he was going to earn it by his faithfulness. But it was through the righteousness of faith. God promised Abram the world, and he knew it. He knew that in God, he was being promised eternal life in all things, and God owns all things, and the land was a token of that promise that Abram's descendants would actually inherit, but the ultimate promise was bigger than that. And Abram understood that, and we need to understand that as well. It's interesting. As I said to you, Abram, he just sets down his tent, takes it up, sets down his tent, takes it up, but he does build something. Did you see what he builds? He builds altars. He never builds a house for himself. This isn't his home. Not that we can't build houses, but Abram's a particular kind of type here. He never builds anything for himself, anything lasting, but he builds altars to the Lord. Verse 7. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And again in verse 8, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And when Abram leaves, he doesn't tear the altars down. And they are a memorial, they are a statement to the world. God owns this place. If you don't think those altars and Abram's worship of this other God, not the gods of that land, was not a real serious reproach and rebuke of those peoples, you don't understand the ancient times. I don't think Abraham went out of his way to offend people and make himself a nuisance, but he did not compromise his faith. He doesn't go to the altars and the religious shrines that they surely had and use theirs and you know by acknowledging that you kind of acknowledge their gods you know we'll acknowledge your god you no 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 even when he's at the terebinth tree the oasis at shechem where they would have had a religious shrine abram builds his own altar maybe right next to it i don't know but this was a bold statement calvin says this would have been a would have been a reproach to the peoples of the land saying that their gods were not God, that Abram's God was God. This foreigner bringing his God into the land, saying, my God is with me, my God has this land. He didn't do it by arms. He didn't do it by political activism. He did it by worship. Do you get that? Don't fall for these false teachers online. He did it by worship. He worshiped and proclaimed it's already God's. He worshiped. In a foreign land that he knew God owned. He did it by altars. He did it by worship. He called upon the name of the Lord. This is how we seek the Lord. This is how we seek his glory. This is how we exalt his name. The unbelieving world does the opposite. It wants to take over everything. And unfortunately, people in the church now want to do that too. Fight fire with fire, right? (laughs) Go watch the old fire with fire Kansas video from the 80s. I don't know where that came from. But it's got a bad ending because it doesn't work. We can't use the weapons of the world and fight their way. Because when we do that, we abandon God. Abram lives by faith in a God that already owns all things. And he exalts his name by worship. It's interesting. The first thing that Cain and his descendants do is go out and build the city of man. Chapter 4, Genesis. What does the godly line doing? What are they doing when Cain is building the city of man? The end of chapter 4. To Seth also was born a son. He called his name Enosh. At that time, 
people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The line of Seth worships while the line of Cain tries to possess the world. And Abram worships while the Canaanites possess the world. Do you see our victory? Are we going to settle for this stupid, false, this paltry, small, political, cultural victory that's being told we have to do? When we have the victory of God in worship, they want scraps. I want it all. I want everything. And we have it now by faith in Christ. We don't have to wait for it. That's the lie. Abram didn't believe the lie. He proclaimed the word of God in the land. He worshiped, and that's something they can't stop. They can't stop him proclaiming God's rule and reign by word. They can kill him. They still haven't stopped him. This is something we can't lose. The other thing, we have to win. We haven't won yet. We have to go out and do it. We have to do it. Jesus has already done it. We worship because it's done. It's finished. We worship in the victory of our Lord that we have now by faith. This is the public worship of God. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the public worship of God, the public worship. So Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. And I've said to you before, all the way back in Genesis 4, when that was declared, that's public. Because when Abram builds that altar, that's public. You see that. That's not private faith, you know, for prayer, prayer closet. That's going out in the middle of the culture and building an altar to the Lord because God said to worship. And so he worships publicly. He proclaims that he belongs to God. God is God. And as I said to you, God is our God. God is the God of this land. We are one nation under God, whether or not it's acknowledged. God does own all of the school systems, whether or not it's acknowledged. God already owns your company. He owns all things already. Whether or not they treat you well, he owns them. Do you believe it? Do you act that way? Or do you think you have to still go and take it? Because actually he doesn't really own it. The public worship of God. Abram's passing through the land. He's building altars because he knows that God owns the land. And whenever his prior religious inclinations were across the river when they worshipped other gods, as, as Joshua will say later, when he builds that altar, he's saying the Lord is God and I am the Lord's and he is with me now in this land, though you have gods and you don't acknowledge him. It's what Abram does. And again, he worships God according to God's word. We don't need to make our faith obnoxious. We don't need to make ourselves targets, but we cannot deny, we cannot hide that we are servants of the living God and that we worship him according to truth. How do you do that? You worship your God is God. That's how you do it. He is God. This nation is his. America is under him. Your company already, again, already God owns it all, possesses it all. And so we worship God according to his word. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Though we live in a land that's hostile to him, we live in the land of the Canaanites also. And they have the power to rise up and kill us as they could have rose up and killed Abraham. Now God is sovereign and only if God lets them. 
So what do we do? What does Abram do? Well, he arms himself when he begins to train warriors, you know, the old ninja scene, and they're all doing the... <laughs> I don't see any of that. I see Abram worshiping a God who's already won. And whether he lives or dies, he's following God, and he's already won. That's what Abram does. Do you worship the Lord? Do you truly worship him as Lord who already owns all things? The Bible says we confess, like Abram, that we truly are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things plainly declare that they seek a homeland. Again, this was referring to Abram, but we declare we seek a homeland when we say such things. And now Hebrews eleven sixteen, the last verse of, that we read, says they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. They did. They did. They desired a heavenly country. Why don't we? Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, should we do everything we can to influence people and institutions around us? Yes. But that is not the victory. That's not the mission of the church. We don't need to refute every slander, answer every objection, win every battle, secure and take over every institution, be bigger, better, richer, stronger, faster, smarter. We worship the Lord who has already conquered all, who promises us all. We just need to believe and to live it out. Worshiping God and what will always to some degree be a foreign land even though it's entirely owned right now by our king. And when we worship that way, we testify that God rules over this land, this land of Canaanites. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you. For the victory that we already have in Christ, we confess how slow we are to believe it, how much we are enamored with the things of this world. We want to fight for the things of this world like the enemies. We're tempted to take up arms as if what we have in Christ is not enough. It's not enough. We want more. We want heaven on earth. Lord God, we confess that many of our ancestors lived and died in squander, in persecution, on the run, executed, imprisoned, and they did not think that they enjoyed less of the kingdom of God than we do. Their faith was much greater than ours. And we confess that to you. And we ask you to forgive us and to begin to live like those who are already victorious in Christ. And who are celebrating it. And who are calling upon others to join us before he returns. For there will be no chance to do so then. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.